0: He, <laughs> the Mysterious Old Radio Listening Society, a podcast dedicated to suspense, crime, and horror stories from the golden age of radio.
1: I'm Eric. I'm Tim. And I'm Joshua. We love mysterious old-time radio stories, but do they
2: stand the test of time? That's what we're here to find out. Today, we return to the listener library for a recommendation from our mysterious listener, Emmett.
0: Emmett writes, Crime Classics is the most underrated show of OTR. I have a commute that takes me an hour each way. Don't fret, I have an electric vehicle. And the best few weeks I spent in that car were the ones when I heard crime classics for the first time. Play that one with Bathsheba. What a great mix of suspense and history. Crime Classics debuted on CBS Radio June 15, 1953. As
1: the title suggests, it was an anthology series featuring dramatizations of true crime stories, ranging from truly classic cases like Jack the Ripper and the assassination of Abraham Lincoln, to lesser-known
2: crimes such as the one we're listening to today. The program was created, produced, and directed by the prolific and multi talented Elliot Lewis. Scripts were by Morton S. Fine and David Friedkin, who at the same time were collaborating with Lewis on another radio series, Broadway Is My Beat. Not to be outdone, Lewis was simultaneously directing, producing, and starring in a third series for CBS on stage with Kathy and Elliot Lewis. In fact, during the fall of 1953, crime classics, and on stage were broadcast back-to-back. Back.
0: Lewis, Fine, and Friedkin approached the program's dark subject matter with an equally dark sense of humor. The droll tone was personified by the host and narrator, fictitious connoisseur of crime, Thomas Hyland. Veteran radio actor Lou Merrill played Highland with a wry smile in his voice and an audibly arched eyebrow. And now let's listen to The Crime of Bathsheba
1: Spooner. The debut episode of Crime Classics, first broadcast July 20th,
2: 1953. It's late at night, and a chill has set in. You're alone, and the only light you see is coming from an antique radio. Listen to the sounds coming from the speaker, listen to the music, and listen to the voices.
3: Good evening. This is Crime Classics. I am Thomas Hyland. Listen. Listen. The man in nondescript uniform dropping stones into that well is a mercenary soldier, more recently a deserter. He's testing the depth of the well, the only way he knows, since a length of rope is not immediately available, and more complicated machines are as yet undiscovered. This is the year 1778, and the deserter is named James Buchanan. Next to him is his friend, another deserter, whose name is William Brooks. These men are in the employ of Mrs. Bathsheba Spooner of Brookfield, Massachusetts, whose well it is. Mrs. Spooner will pay these men immediately. They deposit the body of her murdered husband right down there. And tonight, my report to you on the crime of Bathsheba Spooner, the first woman to be tried for murder in the United States.
4: Crime Classics, a new series of true crime stories taken from the records and newspapers of every land from every time. Your host each week, Mr. Thomas Highland, connoisseur of crime, student of violence, and teller of murders. Now, once again, Thomas Highland.
3: The place is Brookfield, Massachusetts, the year 1778. Scene: the home of Joshua and Bathsheba Spooner, a large and respectable dwelling, two stories in height, situated on the north side of the road from Brookfield to Worcester. In the front of it and nearly opposite on the south side of the road are stately elms and a well. And
5: in the living room, there's this. What manner of woman are you, Bathsheba? There's no content in you and no happiness. And
6: what happiness have you given me? A life that dies quickly. Cooking and sewing. And from you, drunken sleep. And you've
5: not answered me. You would like to see me dead, would you not?
6: Listen to me, Joshua. When you returned this morning from Worcester, my heart sank in me. I'd hoped you wouldn't come back.
5: That I would have an accident. That in some way I would be killed. Yes. That you would be free then. Yes. To yes. walk the town. Newly widowed with a wandering eye. Yes. And you listen, shrew. I am your husband and I'm your lover, and that's the way things are.
6: Old man! Old man! Ezra? Ezra?
7: I've been waiting. Bathsheba. Wait. No more waiting, Bathsheba. The time I was away from you, with your husband in Worcester. The thinking about you. And
6: there'll be more waiting. Until it's done. Until you kill him. I tried, but I could not. He asked me a question my husband did. What manner of woman are you, he asked. Now I wonder. What manner of woman am I to love such as you or youth? A boy who pretends to manhood, you without the courage to... The
7: poison you gave me, there was no opportunity, Bathsheba. And a
6: boy who lies. Opportunity. When it becomes nighttime, my husband becomes a drunkard. You know that. To empty the poison in the cup when you were with him, a simple thing like that, you couldn't do.
7: I swear it to you, Bathsheba. He'll die.
6: When? Go to him now. To the tavern where he is. Empty the poison. I
7: I threw the poison away.
6: With no courage.
7: Bathsheba. Speak
6: my name and bedevil yourself with it.
7: Just kiss me, Bathsheba.
6: No kisses. No secret whisperings. None of that. No more. Until my husband is dead. <laughs> Laugh then. You'll see I mean it.
7: <laughs> There's a wench, Bathsheba, at the other end of town. And she watches me when I walk by.
6: Then go to her. All
7: right. All right.
6: Wait. Don't leave me.
7: You almost let me go.
6: Boy. Boy.
7: You... Bathsheba.
6: Kill him. Kill my husband.
7: Later.
3: And that was Bathsheba Spooner. You've come to know her pretty well. You've seen her hating. You've seen her loving. There's more you should know. She was the sixth child of an illustrious man, General Ruggles. The general was a man of great wealth and lived in a style of unusual luxury for that day. He kept 30 horses and had a park of 20 acres for deer and a pack of hounds for the amusement of numerous visitors. He was a man intensely loyal to the British crown and never hid his loyalties. And so... At the outbreak of the Revolutionary War, he was forced to give up his estate and to leave the country. His married life was also pretty bad, and he and his wife did not set a good example to his children in their conjugal relations. Bathsheba sprang from that kind of a household. Her loyalist background in time of war, and the very fact of the name she had, Bathsheba, were sufficient cause for the town in which she lived to view her with alarm. But keep this in mind. Bathsheba Spooner is going to murder her husband. How? Well, let's see how time and motive and circumstance conspire to get a man violently dead. The man, Joshua Spooner. Let's pick him up and see what he's doing. It's the same evening, and since it's after dark, he's drinking. And in Brookfield, there's only one public house in which to drink. Cooley's Tavern. And that's where he is.
5: <laughs> oh, no, 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 Doctor. Yeah. Then what would you do? To trap General Burgoyne, very simple. Hand me your tankard, Doctor King. Uh-huh. Now, and here, this spoon, the line of march of Burgoyne. Uh-huh. And your tankard and mine, two sections of the troops of General Washington. Uh-huh. Now, watch. <laughs> and that's how we take care of General Burgoyne. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Barkeep, more ale.
3: Joshua Spooner talks of strategies and drinks his ale. But mark this. Near the bar, another table. Two men. Men in nondescript uniforms. Deserters from the army of General Burgoyne. Their names... James Buchanan and William Brooks. They've made known the fact that they've deserted the enemy, so their drinks are on the house and the appreciative customers. They're having a fine time.
8: Drink, drink your ale, Will. <laughs> Make me a toast and I'll drink with you. And a toast you shall get. The going is a scurvy... Louder, Will, louder, else we'll pay for our, it- our own ale. Aye. A toast. Aye, right, I'll give you a toast to that plump-bellied burgoy may rot in the wilderness. (laughs) That is if he don't drown coming across the St. Lawrence.
5: (laughs) Gentlemen. (laughs) And a merry evening to you. Joshua Spooner is my name and it would do me proud if you would permit me... Ale is
8: what we're drinking, sir.
5: Ale for the Patriots!
8: <laughs> and Patriots we are indeed to goodness. Oh, yes. We join General Washington, sir, and his colonials. You should know that. And, and from here we go to Worcester, where a column of Washington's heart is a... Uh... Oh, ale <sighs> to you, sir, and thanks to you. My pleasure. <clears throat> Willie Bach, your tankard is dry, and so is mine.
5: If you will permit me, gentlemen, it would be my pleasure. My pleasure, indeed.
3: It would be Mr. Spooner's pleasure, indeed, to buy the lads more ale, as was the custom. True, it was 1778, but the etiquette was the same. Nothing too good for our boys, And the deserters in Cooley's Bar were off to join our boys. As a matter of fact, it was Mr. Spooner's pleasure to direct James Buchanan and William Brooks to Worcester to become soldiers in Washington's army. It just happened that one of the landmarks that Mr. Spooner gave the lads went something like this.
5: Now mark you, a file of elms and a well, and across the road from it, my house. When you pass there, you'll be leaving Brookfield. And you will know you're on your way. We'll have another ale before you leave. You're a
8: gentleman if I ever met one. Oh, a true one, James, my lad. A real gent.
3: So they touched tankards, the deserters and Joshua Spooner, and they made tearful farewells. And the deserters left and walked the road toward where the elms were. And a house. And a well. Let's go on ahead of them. Let's get back to the lady. Bathsheba's home. Bathsheba's fixing her hair. And the youth Ezra? He's tying into it night ribbons. A lover's tender gesture. Their talk, however, is shocking.
6: Perhaps you're right. Perhaps the best way is not to poison him.
3: I say shoot him.
6: Perhaps, in such a way as to make it appear as an accident. Will you shoot him, Ezra? tightly with the ribbon, dear. Ezra?
7: I... I have not the courage for it.
6: But you know of guns and shooting. You were in the army for a year.
7: I marched. I shot no one. I marched upon an ambush and was wounded. Myself, I never pulled a trigger.
6: If not you to kill him, Ezra, then someone.
7: yes. Turn from your mirror, Bathsheba, and look at me.
6: (laughs) Oh, listen. Do you hear?
7: Yes. Drunkards.
6: Someone. Go to the window.
7: Drunkards. Two of them by the moon. British deserters. I've seen them in town.
6: Call to them.
7: Bathsheba. Call to them. Hello. You there.
6: What do you want? I'll
7: talk to them. A lady wants
6: to talk to you. A lady?
8: At the ladies' service, any time. Let them in, Ezra.
3: The Bathsheba Spooner who greeted the deserters must have been quite a sight. Tall, long hair, and blue ribbons. There must have been a fire in the fireplace, and in all probability she was standing in front of it. Her manner was gracious, and she was smiling. Ezra served the liquor. All in all, it was the nicest thing that could possibly have happened to two fellows who had deserted General Burgoyne.
6: And now, gentlemen, a question. We bow, bow, James, my lad.
8: <laughs> <laughs> Say on, my lady.
6: How would you, gentlemen, like five hundred pounds to see you on your long journey?
8: Merchandise would warm the cockles, wouldn't it, Will? It would. Does that answer you, my lady?
6: And what would you do for it? There is
8: nothing that Will and I have not done, <laughs> and for less handsome payment from less handsome women, far less.
6: Kill my husband.
8: This lad, the one you call Ezra. Come here, lad. The next skinny ones don't take long for <laughs> twisting. Not
6: him. Not Ezra.
8: Not him, Jack. Then who?
6: My husband will return from his drinking. Will you wait for him? Kill him? When he returns, meet him outside at the door and greet him. Will you?
8: Not only for the money, dear lady, but for the pleasure of your presence to two tired soldiers. Right, Jane? It's the truth. You be the master of this house,
5: huh? uh, yeah, and you are the two... that we be. <laughs>
8: <laughs> oh, this one was a struggler, eh, Will? That's the woman, Ooh. and the one she calls Ezra. Hi, Mrs. Spooner. Come see. It is done. And a tidy job, if I say so myself, Mrs. Spooner.
6: And now he's dead.
8: What will you do with him?
6: There's a well across the road.
8: Ah. Give us a hand, James. And you, Ezra.
5: <coughs>
6: I'll walk with you.
9: It's a deep
7: well.
6: Poor little man.
3: And that's how Joshua Spooner died. And that's how Bathsheba Spooner
9: killed him.
4: You're listening to Crime Classics and your host, Thomas Highland. Later this evening, the Lux Summer Theater stars Fred McMurray in a full hour adaptation of the romantic mystery comedy, The Lady and the Tumblers. An odd triangle composed of a beautiful girl, a suitcase full of explosive letters, and a murdered man will make The Lady and the Tumblers most unusual dramatic fare. Listen to it on most of these same stations later this evening when CBS Radio presents the Lux Summer Theater. And now, once again, Thomas Highland and the second act of Crime Classics and his report to you on the crime of Bathsheba Spooner.
3: Listen to this. It's awful and dread, this tale that I tell, Joshua Spooner lies dead in a well. In Brookfield Town in 78, from six stout wax across the pate. Small poem by an anonymous contributor to the Worcester Spy, the local newspaper of the day. A change of scene now. Across the road from a cold well into a warm living room. Tableau, four people. Mr. Spooner was such an elegant man. Uh, What will become of
8: his clothes in his closet and his horse?
6: You may have them.
8: Come away from the window, Bathsheba. Here to me, close.
6: The stars are dancing.
8: You're shivering. Are you cold? No. Will is very weary, Widow Spooner. Uh, we'll not go on to Worcester tonight.
6: Then wait till morning. You can make a place for yourselves in the barn.
8: But the money we'll have now, and the clothes and the oars.
6: Yes, all of it. Ezra.
8: Yes.
6: In the morning, you will go to Cooley's Tavern. Inquire of Joshua. Tell them he's not been home. Tell them I'm frantic for his welfare. Yes. Good night, gentlemen. A very good night.
5: Mr. Cooley. Aye. Hot grog on a nippy morning, Mr. Ross.
7: I've been sent to inquire of Joshua Spooner. Mm, Who sent you? The wife of him, Bathsheba. Did she now? And why? Last night, he did not return home. And Mrs. Spooner is frantic for his welfare. Not home?
5: Well, he's not here. Last night, he sat right there, my lad, and discussed military strategies with the doctor. Then, to the best of my knowledge, he went home. Dr. King. Doctor.
7: Doctor, wake. Wake up. Please, Doctor, wake up. It's important. Hey, what, 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 what is it? What? Where is Joshua Spooner? Where is he? Mr. Cooley says he sat with you last night.
5: Well, as, he, as he did, as he did. And left me.
7: He's not home. Who is? Yes? Mrs. Spooner sent me to fetch him. She's troubled that he's not returned.
5: Well, but where else could he have gone if not to his wife?
7: We must find him, Doctor.
5: Yes, yes, by all means.
3: Ezra did that very well. With the precise shading of alarm in his voice. The concern. A man on an errand for a troubled lady. Everybody was impressed. Mr. Cooley closed his bar. Dr. King appealed to the neighborliness of the other customers. And everybody went looking for Joshua Spooner. Immediately, they called on Mrs. Spooner, whom they found in the greatest apparent distress. Upon an examination of the premises in the neighborhood of the doorstep, they observed the tracks of several persons on the snow. And on further search, they found Mr. Spooner. You know where, in the well. So far, only horror and suspicions. But now, let's pick up Willie and James. They haven't left Brookfield. Stupid of them, isn't it? But then you've got to examine it from their point of view. Why become soldiers in Washington's army, especially in the winter, and suffer the privations of the military when they could be warm and rich as a civilian? So, imagine it. Two tattered a million deserters, suddenly elegant, in Mr. Spooner's clothes, which were somewhat tight-fitting. But elegance and tight-fitting are somehow akin. Now, there lived in Brookfield a certain wench whose name is lost in history. This much is known about her. She had an eye for tight elegance. This much is known about her, too, that she went riding with Willie and James on their newly acquired horse.
5: (laughs) I'll
7: help you down. Now, James?
8: No. no. Hey, give us a bus, dearie. Ah, <laughs> uh, that's a dearie. Well? I,
7: how is it we're riding Mr. Spooner's horse?
8: Why, dearie, we don't know a Mr. Spooner.
7: Aren't these Mr. Spooner's silver buckles? No. Aren't you wearing his
8: clothes? These are our clothes, dearie. Come, let's ride some more. It brings the pink to your pretty cheeks.
3: But the cat was out of the bag. The girl told her mother and her mother her father. And it so happened that her father was at that moment on his way to look for the murderers of Joshua Spooner. So the father told some neighbors, and they located James and Willie, brought them all together. The two deserters... Ezra and Bathsheba, and this is what happened.
9: The jurors for the government and people of Massachusetts Bay in New England upon their oath present that William Brooks and James Buchanan and Ezra Ross in the county of Essex, not having God before their eyes, an assault did make upon Joshua Spooner, feloniously, willfully, and of their malice aforethought... on the first day of March last past. With force and arms also by striking, beating, and kicking... aforesaid Joshua Spooner... so as to inflict several mortal bruises... of which Joshua Spooner died. And that Bathsheba Spooner, widow and late wife of Joshua Spooner... being seduced by the instigation of the devil... did incite, move, abet, counsel, and procure the murder... Of aforesaid Joshua Spooner. How do you plead? Not guilty.
8: Not guilty? Not guilty.
9: What statement have you, Bathsheba Spooner?
6: I am the wife of the deceased. If what you accuse me of be true, what end could the death of my husband serve? Were there any reasons, persuading, hopes, inviting, or advantages arising from the death of my husband? By depriving myself of husband, I would subject myself to the burdens of a widow. If I hated my husband, as such has been said, could I not have separated from him, gone to my father or to my brothers? What foolishness is this to say I've loved Ezra Ross, when one of my station might have any gallant I please? Gentlemen, if I be guilty, I was not of sound mind.
9: the sheriff of our county of Essex. Greetings. We command you that on Thursday, the fourth day of June next, between the hours of twelve and four of the clock in the afternoon, you cause William Brooks, James Buchanan, Ezra Ross, and Bathsheba Spooner to be conveyed from our jail, where they are now in your custody, to the usual place of execution, and there to be hanged by the neck until their bodies be dead. (laughs) The
3: motive, the crime, and the sentence. Justice was simple. And quickly, too quickly for the four prisoners, the fourth day of June. This is a copy of the Worcester spy dated that day that I have here. I'd like to read from it. It was about half past two of the clock in the afternoon when the four criminals were brought out of prison and conducted to the place of execution under a guard of 100 men. The three men went on foot. Mrs. Spooner was carried in a chaise, being then, as she had been for several days, exceedingly feeble. The procession was regular and solemn. Just before they reached the place of execution, one of the most terrific thunderstorms that had incurred within the memory of the oldest inhabitant darkened the heavens. There followed an awful time. The loud shouts of the officers amidst the crowd of 5,000 people. The horses pressing upon those in front. The shrieks of the women in the tumult and confusion. The malefactors slowly advancing to the fatal tree, preceded by the dismal confidence. The fierce coruscations of the lightning athwart the darkened horizon, quickly followed by loud peals of thunder, conspired together and produced a dreadful scene of horror. It seemed as if the author of nature had added such terrors to the punishment of the criminals as might soften the stoutest heart of the most obdurate and abandoned. At length, the place of execution having been reached, Ross, Buchanan, and Brooks ascended the ladder to the stage.
7: Our Father, who which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name.
3: Ross made an audible prayer. The other two were engaged in silent devotions until they faced the noose. Mrs. Spooner, as she approached the tree, was seen to bow gracefully to many of the spectators with whom she had been acquainted. Then she crept up the ladder on her hands and knees. When the eyes of the malefactors were covered and all was ready, Mrs. Spooner took the sheriff by the hand. And for the first time, Bathsheba Spooner accepted the verdict
6: of justice. My dear sir, I am ready. In a little time, I expect to be in bliss and but a few years must elapse when I hope I shall see you and my other friends again.
3: That's the way the newspaper recorded it. This has been my report of the crime of Bathsheba Spooner, the first woman tried and executed for murder in the United States.
4: In just a moment, Thomas Highland will tell you about next week's Crime Classic. The National Blood Program has been made part of the Department of Defense. That's how vital a continuing growing stockpile is against emergencies of war or peace. In the warm weather months, donations fall off. In the first week of June alone, donations drop 20%. This must be offset immediately. Before you go away, please phone the Red Cross for an appointment to give a pint of blood. You'll enjoy your vacation more for having done it. And here again is Thomas Highland. Next week we'll be with
3: you at the same time, although geography and year will change. The place? Pimlico, England. The year 1879. My report on the shockingly peaceful passing of Thomas Edwin Bartlett,
0: greengrocer. Thank you. Good night. That was The Crime of Bathsheba Spooner from Crime Classics here on the Mysterious Old Radio Listening Society podcast. Once again, I'm Eric. I'm Tim. And I'm Joshua. And our thanks to our mysterious listener, Emmett, for that recommendation as we delved into our listener library of requests. Uh, as we headed back into Crime Classics, we did uh, Frame Hanger, or whatever it was called. Death of a Picture Hanger, yes. Yeah, Death of a Picture Hanger. And what other ones did We're we done. do? If a body need a body, we just call broken hair. That's right. And that's then right. there was that Tart One. The Tart One. So, yes,
2: we always forget the title of it, but yes. it was a very early days of the podcast. Ah, yes. Uh, the Man Who sold Tarts? No, that's an escape episode. That's an escape ah. episode.
1: Ah. We're not moving on to this episode. <laughs> oh.
2: Yes, we are, Tim. This <laughs> is are. an intervention, old man. <laughs> <laughs> we'll never remember the name of that episode.
0: In the opening, we mentioned this is the debut. Was this the first episode of Crime Classics?
2: Yes, I think there was another version of it that was the audition, but I chose the broadcast episode. Just it was of slightly better quality, but it yeah. wasn't much different from what I could tell. Bunny Bombler, has close brush with fame. <laughs> That's right. Sorry. Do you have Tourette's? <laughs>
0: <laughs> the word tarts that is not even There's in it. Not.
1: It's not. I totally wrong
0: <laughs> but he sells tarts He's doesn't think he He's sold tarts okay so anyway they uh this is all very crime classicy this is formulaic for the series and that is a compliment i like this series for how consistent it is with itself the reason i asked if this was indeed the first episode because, wow, they hit the ground running.
2: I agree. It's fully formed. This
0: first is episode. fully formed yeah. coming out of the gates, and it doesn't veer from this. And I think that's really rare and really interesting. If you go back and listen to our first podcast episode, you know, there's a m-
1: Yeah, we were pretty good, but we weren't... Well, built. I was.
0: <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, everything has a metamorphosis. Everything has a, an evolution to it, and, and it changes as it goes, and you figure out what works and doesn't work. This could have been any crime classic, and I wouldn't known. Yeah. So I find that really interesting.
2: Uh, um, I also find it interesting that there's a great line from Thomas Highland that could be the elevator pitch for the whole series in here, uh, when he says, let's see how time and motive and circumstance conspire to get a man violently dead. <laughs> <laughs> and that's kind of the tone and the, and the way each story is... Approached. It always moves um, in an interesting way back and forth through time, Mm -hmm. particularly when it starts with that great line of listen. And then we get one really narratively important sound effect. And here it's really great because they do such a nice um, structure where we start at that well, testing the depth of it with the stones. And then the Mm -hmm. first half backs up and gets us all the way back to the well. And we already knew from the top that, oh, it's a well where they're going to throw the body of Joshua Spooner. That's what's impressive about it. It still gets a lot of um, engagement for something that opens by telling us everything that's going to happen, essentially. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And it gets us up to that point halfway through. And then we are left eager to hear uh, how it all turns out. It took me a while because one of the soldiers was Zachary Taylor. Did I
1: get
0: the
2: name right? I'm like, yeah.
0: Was that
1: President Zachary
2: Taylor? Uh, no, one's James Buchanan. James Buchanan. Thank you. Yes.
0: It was Gerald Ford. <laughs>
2: wow, I never knew he killed a guy. It was yeah, Gerald he did. Ford and Bill Clinton. It was a really <laughs> weird team up. He
0: tripped and fell on him. <laughs>
2: Dropped him in a well.
0: Yeah, he, Gerald Ford tripped into the well, <laughs> fell on the guy that was in the well. <laughs>
2: And that's Anthony and then he was hung. Yeah. And Bill was just eating French fries the whole time. <laughs> yeah.
0: Little known story, but all the presidents died in that well. <laughs> it's called the Well of Presidents. They should not keep going back to that well. <laughs> should we vote?
1: <laughs> yes.
2: <laughs> oh, there's I, so many I, great I, scenes in this though. This is all a the show about details.
1: Thing is that every episode of Crime Classics we've l- listened to, I think I have the same Heaping praise comments that are the exact same comments, uh, which is frustrating because I really enthusiastically like this, and I wish I could like it in a different, more frustrating. Way, like I really want to hate this. <laughs> so, like, Unlike all the other ones, this is good in a other different way.
0: So what I was trying
1: Funny, to say yeah. at the
0: top of this, like the formula of it is exactly the same. And
1: to Emmett's uh, message to us, this might secretly be my desert island radio series. Every one of these I've heard has just been joyous and delightful, and even when I know what happens, like you were saying in this story, we know what happens in this story from the get go um but it still always feels like a surprise and a a discovery
2: uh, because it's full of unexpected great little scenes throughout, and that's what keeps you uh tuned in either they're surprises, like the brutality of the two of those deserters killing Joshua Spooner. There's all this sort of wrangling to get them there. And then they're like, oh, welcome home, Joshua. And it's like, boom, 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 dead. Yeah. And that's, like, that's not how I would have expected that scene to go. Um, yes. And there is just great comedy scenes like the deserters who uh, realize if they just keep deriding the British general,
1: they, keep they-, they will just keep getting
2: free drinks. <laughs> And there's another great line from Thomas Highland in that scene about, it was 1778, but the etiquette was the same. Nothing too good for our boys. (laughs) Uh, And it's surprisingly adult Mm -hmm. in its depictions of the affairs and sexuality. I mean, it doesn't say anything outright, but the negotiation between Ezra and Bathsheba, um, when uh, Ezra says like, there's a wench who was giving me the eye, and then <laughs> she changes tactics really quickly and is uh, purring in his ear, kill my husband. And when he says, later, it's so <laughs> right, <laughs> full of suggestion. Mm-hmm. Um, and even that uh, image right, when they, they come had pancakes. back. Yes, they made great pancakes together. And just that scene, a uh, clearly post-coital scene of them discussing other ways than poison they might kill Joshua mm-hmm. um, while he's tying ribbons in her hair and... Mm-hmm. And even the scene where she invites the deserters in, and they, the narrator describes how she's standing behind what was probably a fire, and he does hmm. everything but saying backlit <laughs> through her nightgown in muslin gown. <sighs> So to me, those are the surprising little scenes in where this all comes to life for me, those unexpected uh, ways of presenting the story. Mm-hmm. I don't want to monopolize the entire podcast, but I think particularly in the second half is when it really shows off, Yeah, in my the uh, her arc
1: of I'm just this horrible person to I will never admit that I did it. My health slowly declines so I can barely make up the stairs to my own execution. And then just announcing I'm going to a better place, I... Look forward to seeing you all there soon. Yes. <laughs> just like,
2: you <laughs> bastards. <laughs> right. And just the choice, whether or not, I, I have no idea. Maybe uh, they actually found an old, very hyperbolic uh, newspaper account of the time, or they cleverly wrote it in that style, but presenting it all in that language, that very f- flowery, yeah. melodramatic you know, yellow journalism of the day including the thunderstorm God's yes. wrath that appeared which then allows them for to have great audio sound for it. That
1: sound effect, all those big dramatic moments that are such a stark contrast to the cool even tone That that's the structure of the show like every Thomas uh, Highland is so chill and dry and then horrible things happen and then characters are just kind of chill and dry and then like thunderstorm and then new drop, noostrop, drop, new drop, new new Yeah, one after the other, and each based on the audience reaction is more grisly than the next. Yeah, or, or, than
2: the first. And this whole second half opens with that great poem again. Yes. Whether it was really a poem that the writers dug up from uh, the uh, seems like it was the Wooster yes. Spy. It's, yeah, very credible. It's a fantastic little bit of uh, verse that again just sets the tone. But occasion, like you said, sets the wrong tone. So then you're kind of laughing a little bit, and then it gets so dark yeah. and so harsh. The other thing I, I really like is that the narrator steps in and comments on the narrative when the deserters don't leave town. Mm-hmm. Like they get their money, they get the clothes from Joshua Spooner, and then just ride his horse around, ride his horse around, hang out with the town wench. Um, and Thomas Highland actually says. Pretty stupid, huh? <laughs> and and so this sent me down a completely other rabbit hole because then when they're pretty stupid, huh? I wonder. I'm like, I wonder if that's just them commenting on. We're just stuck with what really happened. <laughs> and sure enough, that is how they got caught. Yeah. Um. According to what I I read, they were in. They went back to the tavern and they were wearing these silver shoe buckles that had Joseph Spooner's initials <laughs> on them. It was actually stupider than what they depicted. I
0: was reminded in the audio drama in that moment when he said, "pretty stupid." NPR did a story on the uh, production assistants for those live cop shows, like Cops. Apparently, as they're running and chasing and pulling people over, anybody that may have gotten into the camera shot, right? They have to run behind the cops. So there's mm-hmm. cameras. All this been way behind her. All these production assistants with pieces of paper and pens, saying, "Would you sign this release?" Mm-hmm. And and if they don't get them, they can't show their face. And the guy asks her, one of these productionists, she's 22 or whatever and young, and says, "But the criminals are always when they're arrested. We always see their face." She goes, "Yeah, we have to run up to them, and at certain point, we put a piece of paper in front of them. You know, we're filming this." And he goes, and they sign it while they're being arrested? And she goes, yep, 99% of the time. And he says, why would they do that? And she said, because criminals are stupid. (laughs) And I was always struck by how sincere and how, duh, she said that to the guy. Like, yeah, we just hand it to him and they, yeah, I'll sign that. And they do almost every time. But anyway, that moment where he said, aren't they stupid, reminded me of, yeah, criminals are stupid.
2: <laughs> to Tim's point about how she lacked any remorse at the end, mm-hmm. it's fascinating what they left out of this oh, wow. historical account simply because it's too dark for 1950s radio and it will give you great empathy for Bathsheba Spooner. Ezra got Bathsheba pregnant. And that is what started the clock ticking on getting rid of her husband. Because in 1778, you know, English common law is still in practice. And if a woman is proven, and that's in scare quotes, (laughs) proven to be uh, an adulteress, she could be stripped to the waist and flogged in the street. And so it was now kind of a a self-preservation mode Mm -hmm. that she went into. And what's fascinating about it she is then tried and she's not only the first woman uh, to be tried for murder in the colonies it's the first insanity plea mm. um that they tried the, their defense said uh oh, this woman is clearly has a disordered mind that didn't work and then she did tell people she was pregnant because the law was after the the quickening uh you couldn't uh, execute someone to protect the the baby the baby the fetus's life and um she was then Inspected by a group of like six midwives and two men as well, and they all said, Nope, she's not pregnant. And they threw her in jail. This hanging was really quick, too, it was like wow, very fast. And so she was visited by a reverend who heard her story, and he came back out and used his power to say, No, look, (laughs) she's pregnant, you need to do this again. And so they got the same group back, they added a few more midwives. To it, I think, and maybe three or four of this large group said, uh, "Yeah, we do think she's pregnant," but the others still claimed no. And so the judge was like, "Well, since we can't decide, uh, we still have to hang her." But the compromise is, and it's included in the story, she doesn't have to walk to the gallows. We'll let her ride in a carriage wow. since she might be pregnant.
0: <laughs> wow!
2: Uh, so that gives a little more um, light to her attitude. Yeah, so why I think
1: I need to kill my husband. Or
2: also that she was forced into that situation yeah. as well. Um, and then, of course, an autopsy was done, and she was five months pregnant. Uh, oh, And no. they suspect, again, that it goes back to what the story mentions. She comes from a loyalist family, and this is 1778. Um, oh. And there were people who had axes to grind against the people who uh, sided with the British. Right. Wow. Yeah, so it's a much darker even story uh, than uh, presented here in good old crime classics. Uh, but there's an interesting moment too in her performance once the killing has been done. And I don't know if there's like ways they were trying to find to sort of uh, suggest some of these things, not specifically telegraph anything like a pregnancy. I, 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 <laughs> I don't think they were doing that. But she is so quiet and mm. somber once it's done. Yeah. When she's giving the directions to take the money, take his clothes, yeah. get out of town. So anyway, I, this is the first time in a crime classics that I've actually gone and done the research on the real crime, and it, it added a whole level of uh, insight into the script and what they've grabbed. I mean, they had to have wanted to put that in the story at the time and, and knew they couldn't. Right. That's just a captivating story.
0: Thank you. That was better than the crime classics. Oh, you're such a jerk. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was a compliment. Oh, okay. Okay. That was fascinating. I mean, that
1: was fantastic for you. <laughs>
0: well, should we vote? I loved it. It's fantastic. Crime Classics is very good, and this was really well done. Yay.
1: <laughs> it was great. Yeah, I mean, I suppose if they could see into the future to know that someday there will be a podcast that labels things occasionally as classics, and they had the nerve to say, like, all of ours, classics, crime classics, I would say, well played classic. I haven't heard them all yet, but they all seem like these are classics. They're really well done. The Their tone is so, as we said, individual, so singular, and so enjoyable.
2: Like I say every time we listen to Crime Classics, it's, the, it's in the name. Like you said, it <laughs> is a classic. And I realize this is going to vary greatly, you know, depending on people's tastes. I realize it might be too weird or too slow for people, and I'm probably listeners going they're gonna call it a classic again <laughs> but it i agree with Emmett. this is a incredibly underrated show and to give ourselves some stick i think the first time we listened to it out of context we weren't prepared for it i think we were uh, yeah really hard on it i would like to go back and listen to uh buddy bombler buddy bombler and the magic it, turks in the tourette's yes. way. <laughs> The reality is I'm just controlling myself. I could still keep <laughs> carrying on about this. And one part, when they said the thing, it was awesome. I mean, whether it's historically true or not, I'm going to say this one thing. I just loved uh, the Bathsheba stuff. And they mentioned that her, her namestake, it had this nominative determinism um, with the rest of the uh, town who were suspect of her because of her name and because of the loyalist stuff. And it's really funny that she accidentally, and I guess it's true in real life, uh, like Bathsheba from the Bible was unbelievably good looking. And that seems to be true, uh, but then they have the the added irony of like the other characters around her. Like Ezra is no King David, <laughs> uh, Joshua is no Uriah the Hittite. <laughs> uh, so that added a little a nice level of irony to it too for this theological nerd.
0: <laughs> yeah, I have no idea what you just said. I can't I
1: can't hear Hittite now without the Bill Murray like
0: How do you say this? <laughs>
1: <laughs> Hittite, Hittite <All> right. <laughs> More Tourette's words <laughs> Tim, tell him stuff Hey, please go visit You'll find other episodes of the podcast there You can comment on episodes Let us know what you thought about them Vote in a poll, just say, like, here's what I think Vote, that's how you do it You can uh, also find links to our uh, Social media pages uh, I'm doing better about posting on Twitter that, That's a thing that happens
2: It's uh, threads now God <laughs> Oh, social media Just can't keep up with it it's like Facebook and Instagram had a boring baby <laughs> mm-hmm. mm-hmm. face-a-gram uh, you can also link to
1: our thread the store buy some swag and he pivoted you can link to our,
2: our Patreon page are you narrating yourself in the third person again <laughs> no he lied <laughs> <laughs> Yes, yeah, go to patreon.com slash the morals and support this podcast. We are going to speak of ourselves in the third person <laughs> <laughs> until you become a patron. Damn it. Um, I'm losing my voice right now. So I'm going to skip all the great perks we have. You've heard it. You know it. It's got to start making you feel guilty eventually go to patreon.com slash and become a patron today
0: if you'd like to see us performing live the mysterious old radio listening society theater company performs somewhere almost every month if not more than once a month you can find out what we're performing be it classic recreations of old-time radio or some original work which we do a lot of you can find out where we're performing and how to get tickets by going to ghoulishdelights.com or mysteriousoldradiolisteningsociety.com. If you are not able to attend any of our live performances uh, for a number of reasons, if you're a Patreon, we film them and that's part of your Patreon perks. You get access to that footage. So become a Patreon or come see us and have some great food and drink and uh, come see one of our shows. All right. What's coming up next?
2: Next is my pick, and we will be visiting the CBS Radio Workshop for an episode entitled The Enormous Radio. Until then. Look out! This is Crime
3: Classics. I am Thomas Hyland. Listen.
7: <laughs> well, hi. How is it we are riding Mr. Spooner's
8: horse? Why, dearie, we don't know a Mr. Spooner.
7: Aren't these Mr. Spooner's
3: silver buckles? No. Aren't you wearing his clothes? Bad boys, bad boys. Get up with them, isn't it? Buddy Bumbler.